I'm a strong tree with branches for many birds. I'm good for something in this old world, and I know it, too. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and voiceover guy here in uh, San Diego, California, and I've just finished tattooing a couple of letters on, on on my wrists, on my fingers as well here, Steve, ready to go for our uh, second part of our exploration of Night of the Hunter. Well, I understand how you got sin on one wrist, but uh, on one on one hand. But how did you tattoo files on the other one? It just seems like you don't have enough knuckles. <laughs> exactly. Well, I just combined the L and the E. I just oh, made that okay. easier. Yeah, it just makes it a lot easier. Uh, well, I think it's real. I love the way you're supporting the show. I just it's think a dedication, know. man. Yeah. Dedication. It hurts, but it was worth it. Um, I am super excited to get back into this film and. and, and you know, we don't always know quite where we're going to make the the break between part one and part two, because it depends on how long we talk. And in this case, I think we did it perfectly, because yeah. the, where the movie goes from this point forward is so different and so upsetting, but also enters into this strange, fairy, you know, terrifying fairy tale world as yeah. we go into part two. Yeah. And speaking of which, I think we should just go there, which is where we just were was at the murder of John and Pearl's mother and they heard a strange commotion outside. Yeah. We know what's going on. I don't know that they know what's going on. And then I think this next cut is really surprised. Again, I know, I know I said it before I was continually surprised by this film and where we go next is we go to spoons because Harry Powell has gone to spoons with a story and the story he's telling icy and Walt is that Willa has run away. Mr. Powell. If there's anything, anything we... No, it's my shame. It's my crown of thorns. I must wear it bravely. What could have possessed that girl? Satan. I mean, it's funny to watch this film in 2023 because you see the shameless gaslighting that this guy is doing. And, you know, we're aware now more of con men and con people in the world, and it's it would have been fascinating to see people's reactions to this kind of character in the 1950s, right? Because obviously there were con men in a lot of films back then, but the style was much more overt, right? More like a sinister, and so to speak, and louder and bigger type of character. This is shameless. This is in in wrestling parlance. This is what you call a chicken shit heel. <laughs> uh, which is some it was legitimately that's what it's called in pro I wrestling. You. I just never heard it before. I like yeah, it. yeah. And it's a person who is constantly doing this dirty stuff in the back and running like a scared coward every time they get caught doing stuff, but they keep being a heel and escaping um retribution until, of course, the face, which is the good guy or good wrestler, good, could be female as well catches them and makes them pay for it eventually by the end of what they call a program, you know, between two people. So this is what he essentially is doing this going and crying to the, to these two people who he knows he can dupe because of their religious connection. He can dupe them into thinking this about her. And of course, also within the, the strong um, uh, religious uh, approach to things is this idea that women are weak. Women are harlots. Women are whores. That's kind of inherent sometimes in some of the approaches 
in how a um, patriarchal religion is doled out. And so he is playing to that by making it seem like she was the one that ran off. She is the the uh, sex-obsessed woman, and he is the lowly preacher, the yep. God-fearer, that kind of thing. And so it's a really unsettling, disgusting scene to witness, um, even more so than the murder, in my opinion, because he is that you know that's coming, but this approach is so taking advantage of people's faith for his own benefit, and that's always ugly to see. You know? I, 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 it's funny. I totally agree. It is a more upsetting scene than the murder, which doesn't make any sense because I think that the cinephile's position on murder is that it's really bad. Yeah, it's not a good thing. No, it's bad. But I think what it, I think part of it is the way that murder is filmed is that it's so it's beautifully filmed. Yeah, stylistic. And she yeah. seen yeah, it's very stylistic. It's in this kind of religious or quasi-religious frame and that she seems resigned to her fate in some way that you feel like you're going through a ritual whereas yeah. here he's clearly being he's a con man and it's funny as you were speaking i went oh there's a certain arrogance that you have to have to be a con man yes you know yeah. is that you have to believe that you are so much smarter that these than these other people that that there's no way they can catch you and the other thing i was just thinking about is like how many times in our lifetime have we heard the story of the husband saying my wife has disappeared mm -hmm. and then we find out that he has murdered her. Yeah. There was one just recently, I think, where it was that story. Yeah, or the you know, we saw the those legendary times when that guy when the remember the husband and wife on the bridge and the guy blamed the two people for killing his wife yep. when in fact he had killed his wife. Yep. And that is a whole thing. I mean, NBC uh what Dateline is just living off those kinds of stories. Uh, all the time from both sides, both men and women doing it, but certainly in this case, focusing on the men and how they um, can manipulate uh, certain members of the community for their own benefit. Well, and that is exactly what he's doing as they walk in to join him and he is weeping and spouting scripture. Yeah. And there's an inherent thing too about older women versus younger women. And I think we touched on it right in, in the yep. first part, but certainly here, seeing how Icy reacts to this, he, she buys it hook, line and sinker. Simply because he wears a collar, she buys it hook, line, and sinker, and 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 it, it plays into her own feelings about a younger woman. And certainly, we saw how she felt about her. So this is not a leap for her to make. This possibility is not something that is out of the realm of possibility for her. So she immediately jumps on it. But it also plays into what is sometimes. There in a lot of these religious communities, a lot of religious, and I speak from my own having grown up in religious communities for many, many decades, like this idea that there is a hatred sometimes, a bubbling hatred between older female members of the community and younger female members of the community. They try to really kind of turn these younger women into asexual women and try to make them ashamed of their sexuality, ashamed of their abilities, because they fear that these young women are coming to take their men. And look, it's not like men haven't slept with younger women in religious communities. So that happens. So it's not an it's not a um, unfounded fear. So the, all of this is, I think, bubbling to the surface as we're seeing these interactions uh, between um, the, the spoons there and, uh, and and Robert Mitchum's character. Well, and and there's this whole other layer to this because as we talked about in our first part, mm. both you and I feel that Icy is sexually attracted to Powell. So right. it's not, you know, yeah. so there's this like whole thing because the way he play, and, and this scene makes me wonder if Powell is aware of that attraction because good point. the preacher, what his story is, is very interesting. Didn't you have no inkling? Yes, I did from the very first night. 
First night. Our honeymoon. How's that? She turned me out of the bed. So the reality that we know, because we saw it, was yeah. that he he refused sex with her. Right. Right. But now he's spinning the story that she re- refused sex with him. Right. And I just go to, does he know that Icy is attracted to him? And that is why he spins the story this way. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe. Um, and th- that would that would certainly play into Icy's attraction for him because it still makes him untouched, so to speak, right. by anyone in the community. She could be the first one uh, in her, you know, in her warped fantasy mind to maybe play with him. And I guarantee you that if that option opened up for Harry to get out of a situation, he yep. would absolutely play to that and use it uh, with Icy to cover his escape or whatever. So, yeah. Well, in the same games he played with Willa of of we can't have sex because I'm pure, mm-hmm. that would totally work on Icy. That 100%. would that would totally go into all of her stuff. And I love too the way he plays the martyr is also brilliant because they go, "Well, what do you figure to do?" Do? Why just stay right here and take care of them kids? Maybe it was never meant for a woman like Willa to taint their young lives. Mm-hmm. What what's amazing to me about a con man? Well, and 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 honestly, I've had this experience just in regular life. Is mm. when there are people you could know a person forever, yeah, and yet someone who who can spin a good story can make you think things about that person that you know that you should know would never happen. Yeah. They know this isn't Willa, yeah, the way he describes her. It does, they've known Willa for probably their whole lives or yeah. her whole life. Yeah, it's interesting how people can take uh, for their own benefits, can twist and manipulate the perceptions that you have had for decades about a certain person simply because it serves their needs, if you know what I'm saying. I know exactly what you're saying. And well, and the thing too is when the lie, when the lie is so obvious and you don't catch it, because like they ask, well, didn't she leave no word? And he says, A scroll on a notepaper on the bureau. I burned it. It's like, oh, really? How convenient. (laughs) And then the other thing he says is that she was drinking. Yeah, yeah, of course. Got to turn her into uh, a woman who is susceptible to all the levels of sin, drink and sex. I tried to save her. I know you did, Mr. Powell. I know how hard you tried. The devil wins sometimes. Can't nobody say I didn't do my best to save her. Yeah, it's another thing. Why does Icy believe it so much? I mean, beyond the attraction, she's clearly had some issues with Willa, some jealousy of Willa. There's something really deep-seated and disgusting here from her side as well, that she is so willing to believe the words of a stranger simply because he has a collar on his neck over a woman she's probably known for many years in the town, maybe even grew up with her, maybe even taught her, raised her, fed her in the Spoon Scout. Who knows? But like, it just mind-blowing how quickly she's willing to just buy all this stuff about Willa. Well, and Walt, Walt clearly doesn't quite believe all of this. Yeah, Walt's very aware this is crap. Because men, listen, let me tell you something. Men know when men are bullshitting. We always know when men are bullshitting. So always trust a man when he's telling, well, at least give the man the benefit of the doubt. When he's telling you what another man is doing, listen to him at least a little bit. Because we always know. We know the patterns. We know the body language. We know the words that are used because sometimes we've done it. So it's just like those are the things when you're seeing 
Walt reacting to it, Walt knows that this guy is dirty. He senses it from the beginning because he knows. But he's also weak. Yes. Well, right. Yes. You know, he also doesn't. And I think, I I think, he, I, I agree with you. I think he mm. does know. Mm. But I think he, you know, like you can have different levels of your thought process. Deep down, Walt knows. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I don't think he necessarily knows that Will is dead. I don't think right. he, he thinks that yet. But but the surface of his mind, the top part of his mind is controlled by Icy. Yeah. Right. And, exactly. and and so he goes with her. And do you think that's why they run an ice cream shop? <laughs> because their name, her name is Icy and their no, last name is Spoon. Soft, soft, uh, melty sure. ice cream. Sure. This idea of sweetness, but the sweetness is soft. It's easily changeable. You can put stuff on it to decorate the taste and hide it. These kinds of things. I wonder if that was a reason why they ran an ice cream shop. I, I, that, that one seems like you're reaching a little bit from my perspective, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. And I think we should go with it. Seven years, eight years later, we finally got to me reaching. <laughs> yep, that's it. That's it. That's too far. <laughs> Ice cream metaphors. Uh, the next shot is astounding. Mm. It's under the water and you kind of move past these reeds. Beautiful visual. Man. And then you see this hair flowing and then we move to Willa sitting in the old Model T, underwater, dead, her hair flowing in the current of the river. Yeah, two things occurred to me here, Steve. One, Creature of the Black Lagoon. Oh, yeah. And in the kind of way that it's filmed. And two, there is a purity here to her. Like, she still has a peaceful look on her face. Yes. And I love that that was what they went with, right? And I, I don't, I, I imagine that Shelley. I don't, I don't know if they bu- built a dummy that is in the shape size, but Shelley size rather. But it's so great. She just has a piece on her face, and the way she's flowing and the white virginal uh, dress, all of it makes it seem like she found her peace. She found her purity yeah. uh, as a woman who was put upon by the men in her life. And I think there's something really great in that, even though. She is, of course, underwater and and dead. You know. Um, so I had the same reaction that you did, and I'm like, mm. wow, that's you know, Shelley Winters in a tank. Like, how this is? How did they do this? And this is, but it is not. Oh, that yeah. is a mannequin, oh. and the makeup artist from Citizen Kane <laughs> built a mask to 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 look like Shelley's face, and I found it like a hundred percent convincing. I yeah. think it's amazing. Oh. Yeah. And then we see a very large hook. I don't know what fish you're fishing for with a hook that big come down and catch on the, the Model T and the camera tilts up through the water to the bottom of the boat. And there is Uncle Bernie looking down. And while the shot underwater is amazing, the shot looking down from his perspective through the water is also amazing. Yeah. And, you know, in those towns, as we've seen in movies and whatever, like they baptize you in those same waters mm, and in a way. Sure. She is almost baptized uh, into the afterlife in, in that way as well. And him looking at her, even the way he sees her from below, just the shock and terror on his face as well. Yeah. It's just uh, unsettling. And then, and this is where this song starts to become really terrifying because mm. okay. you just start hearing. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarm. And then we dissolve to, again, one fantastic shot after another. He's leaning on a tree, looking up at the house. And we see the kids through that little window into the cellar. And then we do a thing that is very much Orson Welles. 
and it is very much silent films, which is that we iris in on that cellar window. Mm-hmm. By the way, when they built the cellar, they built it kid size. Oh. So that so and the reasoning is is that when we get Harry Powell in the cellar, yeah. he's going to look like the giant right. because this is the fairy tale. Now listen, me, Pearl. You and me is running off tonight. Why? If we stay here, something awful will happen to us. And Pearl's line is so sad. Will Daddy Powell take care of us? Because she loves him. Yeah, well, one of the many women in the film who are duped, or females in the in the film who are duped by him and his mm-hmm. and his charm and his lies, you know. Well, and even though he threatened her and was already abusive to her a few yeah. scenes ago, right. I mean, it's not like kids with an abusive parent don't still love that parent. Well, you know? look, it, it, pull it out all the way out, Steve. It's not like in a patriarchal society, uh, women aren't used to being abused by men or yelled at or beaten or whatever. And then the men are still seen as the caretakers, you know? And so there's that psychological negotiation that unfortunately a lot of women have to go through. Mm-hmm. A lot of females in patriarchal societies have to go through in negotiating things like this, you know? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Fucking scary. <laughs> so scary. I mean, when he's talking about himself, yeah, that is really scary. Yeah, and he starts to come down the stairs, and then we hear, Mister Powell," because Icy is there, <laughs> and he tells her again. It's a perfectly good lie that the kids are playing in the cellar, mm-hmm. and they won't mind me when I call them. So it's their fault. Yep. And then Icy comes and calls them up. Um, and of course, they have no choice but to go up. Yeah. I won't have you worrying poor Mr. Powell another minute. Just look at you, dust and filth from top to toe. Want me to take him up and wash him good? No. No, thank you, dear Icy. Thank you. <laughs> the look from John up at Icy, mm. you know, this is like, I just, I just thought of the most disturbing uh, comparison, which I maybe I won't even put in. But you know the story about um, Jeffrey Dahmer? Yeah, where there's a, a one of his captives ran out. Yep, found the police, and the police returned the kid to him. Yep, that's what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. There's an adult who could help them, and she is helping the person that's going to hurt them. Right. It's the betrayal, and that's yeah. why John gives it the look like even an upstanding member of society who's supposed to protect us, who essentially symbolizes um, uh, adults, uh, is not. Well, and speaking of adults that should be helping them, I remember in part one, I was so happy when Uncle Bernie said, Yeah, we're in trouble. Holler and come around. Uncle Bernie's your friend. Yeah. <laughs> Cut to Uncle Bernie, who's drinking. And this is an interesting scene, too, because there's clearly a backstory yeah. to this, because he's really drunk, and he's talking to Bess, which is the photograph of his long-dead wife, and is saying, I don't think it was me. I think it was poor old Uncle Bernie. So why would someone think it was Bernie? I I don't know. Maybe there was stuff in the past. Maybe he... Gotta be. Yeah. He must have gotten into some scrapes uh, with the law in the past, and so he doesn't want to open that door again. I think it has to be big scrapes. I think he had to have been in prison. Otherwise, he would never have this thought. Right. Yeah. And then he describes the body that he saw to Bess. Oh, if you could have seen it, Bess... Down there in the deep place, with her hair waving soft and lazy like meadow grass under flood water, and that slit in her throat like she had an extra mouth. 
And the moment that's so sad, <laughs> this is a sad drunk moment, is when he mm. puts the bottle down and it falls over and the booze is just pouring out and he's too drunk to know. And he says, Sweet heaven, save poor old Uncle Bertie. And, and I'm kind of like, fuck you, Uncle Bertie. <laughs> <laughs> Put him in with Grandpa Joe. Yeah, Jesus. We're sitting at the dinner table. Icy has made a huge spread for them to eat. And the two kids are standing there while Powell sits. Can I have my supper, please? Naturally. Can I have milk, too? Mm-hmm. But first, we'll have a little talk about our secrets. It's a scary scene. He's relentless, man. And what's amazing is the hold that John clearly has on Pearl. Yes. Even with all this pressure, she made a promise to John, and she's going to keep that promise. Never mind what John said. John's a meddler. And he brings her, her over, and he shows her the knife. Yeah. By the way, I think, and I think it was um, Mitchum, genuinely scared Pearl with the knife. Wow. Because he wanted her to stay the fuck away from this knife. Like right. the actor, you know, like he he was like, no, no, this is sc- this is a scary thing. You, This is not a toy. Don't play with this. Where's the money hid? But that's why I promised John I would tell. John doesn't matter. Can I get that through your head, you poor, silly, disgusting little wretch? Now she's crying. Yeah. And finally, as he's getting scarier and ser- scarier, John says... John is a tough kid, man. Yeah. Yeah. And he says that it's buried under a stone in the floor of the cellar. And I think John thinks that Powell is going to go down to the cellar alone. And so they could take the opportunity to run away. Come along. What? Go ahead of me. The both of you. And we go back down into the cellar. The music here is great. The fact that he's carrying a candle and we get that flickering candlelight down in the cellar is great. I wear it out. Mind no tricks now. I can't abide a liar. And unfortunately, John is a liar because he points to where it's under a stone and Powell looks down and says, This is concrete. John made a sin. John told a lie. And now it really looks like he's going to kill John. That's how it looks to me. Yeah, I agree. And look, this is the descent into a certain uh, circle of hell, right? Because they're yeah. going down into the bottom of the house, and John is being found out here. But they are in—they are what looks to be in Powell's uh, playground because he has the advantage being an adult, being stronger, being taller. It's a—it's con- a, con- a, a controlled room, and so you would think he would be able to do whatever he wanted to do to these children. In the basement. And also symbolism of basement being something you put stuff in or hide away, hide stuff in, you know? The lords are talking to me now. He's saying, a liar is an abomination before mine eyes. Now, we've obviously said this guy's a con man and a phony. Yeah. Does he actually hear the Lord's voice? Oh, sure. I think he does because he's crazy or unstable, whatever you want to say, mentally unwell. And he pulls out the knife and Pearl is crying. Speak, boy. Where's it here? <laughs> Speak. <laughs> Speak or I'll cut your throat and leave you to drip like a hog hung up in butchering time. And finally, sh- Pearl breaks. It's not my doll. It's not my doll. And frankly, you know, it's like they made this promise to their dead dad. Yeah. You know, but they should have told him a long time ago. You know, yeah. not that they would have necessarily survived if they told him. I don't think right. they would have. I don't think they would have either. Yeah. The doll. <laughs> 
<laughs> Why, sure. <laughs> Last place anybody think to look. And then, just as he's laughing and thinks he's won, John, fucking hero, yeah. snuffs that candle and knocks a shelf so it drops all, I think, I think it's like canning preserves. Yeah. Drops on Paul's head. And they run for it, and he chases after him. And at first, I didn't like this shot. Oh, and then yeah. the more I think about it, I really do like the shot, which is he really looks like Frankenstein yes. running up the stairs, chasing after him. It's a stylized shot yeah. that is reminiscent, as you mentioned earlier, Stephen, part one of the German expressionism, this yeah. idea of these two these two hands go, reaching for them and these two arms reaching for them. And they look he looks almost skeleton-like, bone-like yeah. in the way he reaches for them, yeah. Well, and it just occurred to me that Lawton's wife is the bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, good point. So he might have even been on those James Whale sets mm. at that time. And he runs up the stairs, and John slams his fingers in the door. I just like the sound we get as he gets his fingers caught in the door, or gets slammed in the door. Yeah. Animalistic yeah. whale. And then there is one very strange choice, which is the shot of them outside the cellar door, the two kids, it's actually a freeze frame. Yeah. And the reason is, is that they, they, they cut a line of dialogue or something and they couldn't make it work. And so they didn't have any shot that was moving of this moment with them not talking. And so the choice was to use a freeze frame, which I think is not a good choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's, it, if you notice it, it really does stand out. Yeah. And they run out of the house. And of course, who do they run to? But the guy who said, I can help you, which is yeah. Uncle Bernie, who is passed out totally incoherent on the floor uncle bernie oh please please wake up and bernie is just talking to himself and says i swear on the book i never done it because hmm. he's just lost in this moment and what's really sad is like pearl it's the middle of the night yeah pearl's falling asleep on the bed and john has to get her up and they run to the river this is all a shot on the back lot of course and it's it's just beautifully shot as they're running to the river to get to that skiff and we see pal chasing after them and of course john and pearl know the little trails to get mm -hmm. down to the river pal doesn't know them so he's stumbling through the brush trying to get to them and he gets real close to them yeah. and as they just manage to push off into the river and pal charges after them sinking into the mud it's funny watching it because it's like man I, I don't think pal can swim no. Because if he could swim, he could catch him. And right. they just managed to get away. And then this pal watches them. And this noise, this like animalistic noise builds up out of him into this crazy scream. It's very reminiscent of Cape Fear. You know, when we see mm. De Niro do that. And I know Mitchum played that char the character that De Niro plays um, in um, Scorsese's version. That's who Mitchum played in, in the, the original version. And I haven't seen the original version, so I don't know. I never have either. Does, yeah, I don't know if he does that animalistic whale like that, just like De Niro does when he's dying. But the the connections were unmistakable for me to yeah. see that, to hear that. You know, It's interesting that uh, Spike Lee copied or, or homaged some of Night and the Hunter and Do the Right Thing. Mm. And one of Spike Lee's professors at NYU is Martin Scorsese, who's doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, right around the same time, because Do the Right Thing is 88 and Cape Fear is like 92, maybe? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. They're not that far apart. Mm -hmm. 
John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And then we're out in the river, and now the movie takes on this whole other nature. Amazing shots going down the river, and Pearl starts singing. Once upon a time, there was a pretty fly. He had a pretty wife, this pretty fly. And I think I, I mentioned in part one that Pearl's claim to fame was she had just won a singing contest, yeah. the actress. Yeah. Um, but this is not actually her voice. This is an, an adult that dubbed it in. Oh, wow. And, I, and you can hear some of Pearl's actual voice mm-hmm. in that documentary I mentioned where they have all the outtakes yeah. and, the, and the rushes. Yeah. Um, I wish they had kept Pearl's voice <laughs> rather than the adult. There's a, there's a slight distance, and part of it's the way it's mixed. Yeah. That doesn't f- it feels like, you know, dubbed in, you know. Yeah, but I also think it's supposed to feel how can I say dreamlike, right? Totally. Like it's it's something that's not necessarily happening in the real world. It's so distant and weird and the normal constructs of reality don't necessarily apply. So that might have been the thinking in why they went that direction. Well, it definitely goes into a dreamlike world. That yeah. is totally true. Yeah. And a lot of the shots you'll see in this section where you'll see them going by a frog or the branches, mm-hmm. animals, owls, rabbits, you know, all that stuff. These are all composite shots. Right. So these are all shots. And I think they were actually shot in West Virginia by the second unit mm-hmm. and then composited in together with the shots of them on the fake river in the back lot. Well, you could argue that this has like, how can I say this? This has Greek or other mythology, mythological connections this also could have religious connections. Absolutely. I mean, they're essentially taking their passage out of hell, right? And so because the hell is that town, the hell that their father was arrested and then died and killed, the hell that their mother was killed, the hell that Powell is after them, like that whole town was hell for both of those children. And so going through the things that they're going and the weird things that we experience on the river all the way leading to uh, them being saved by the old woman there, uh, they're essentially taking this passage out of hell well and i mean like what are the stories that we hear later on when we're with um when we're with mrs cooper is 
Moses put, being yeah. put in the basket in the yes. river, yeah. Jesus and his family fe- fleeing from Herod. Like this is, you know, like mm-hmm. th- th- this is a, what's so crazy about this movie and why it resonates so powerfully is I never had made a connection between these biblical stories of these children going through these things yeah. and children today that go through horrible things, Yeah, yeah. you know, and having, I have contact with a family where there's a child who's going through really, really scary stuff. Yeah. You know, and like, Oh, uh, this isn't like crazy stories of the past. This isn't mythological no, stories. No, right, right. This is real. Well, and you think too about mother goose, about grooms fairy, fairy tales, about those things is they're trying to teach children lessons about what life is. Yeah. About the harsh reality of life. Exactly. Exactly. Like the idea that we go like, oh, it's a fairy tale. Oh, fairy tale. Fairy tales are so nice. And maybe part of that is because today we we don't tell quite the brutality of some of these stories. Well, Disney's to blame for that, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Disney really, um, for lack of a better term, Disney-fied these fairy tales. Because when you read the authentic fairy tales, which I remember doing as a teenager, I remember yeah. renting Grimm's fairy tales out of the library out of because I was so curious to read the actual fairy tales and they are brutal and oh, yeah. they don't pull any punches. They are R rated. That book yeah. is definitely R rated. yet it was available for children to rent for many, many years. And you're right because at that time when those things were written, it is a much more harsher world. There's no fucking therapy and getting in touch with your inner child and uh, media that helps you to kind of you know see the world in a joyous way. No, it's a much more, Partial world and religion is telling you that sin is something that you are born with and you're it's inherent in you and it's you're just prone to do evil things. So the whole world is presented in a way that's much more harsher. You know? Well, I mean, you tell the story of you know the boy who cried wolf. Well, mm. you're telling a story because wolves killed people. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like it wasn't just like a metaphor. It was like there's dangerous shit in the world. Exactly. You need to be really careful. Um, but of course it's the kids that are learning these important life lessons. Whereas the spoon family is just reading a nice letter from Walt about how he took the kids to his sister's place and they're going to get good meals and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's the end of the scene that I find chilling Mm. and I didn't understand it when I first watched it because it it took a second to make this connection because she asked Walt if he's relieved and he says you know I got to figure maybe them gypsies busted in and done off with all three of them you and your gypsies they've been gone a week sure and not before one of them knifed a farmer and stole his horse and then you cut to a high angle of Powell riding the horse the pale horse yeah yeah and so what we figure out is that he used these, which we would call today Roma, is rather than gypsies. Right. He used these people that are generally thought of as disreputable, and there's a whole like yeah. we can go into all of what's wrong about those ideas. But he used that to murder someone and steal a horse and have the Roma blamed for it. Right. And you said earlier, right, this idea of how we watch stuff like you know see these stories that are happening nowadays with husbands lying about. Um, the death of their wives or vice versa. And uh, and like you said, or like I said, rather, um, the couple on the bridge, the guy blamed, I think, two, two black youths or two Latino exactly. youths because, of course, that's what you do, you know? And, and nowadays, sadly, oh, and sorry, the last few decades, we've seen that be the excuse constantly and find out that it's not true, right? There's this little 
Who was the woman who had herself fake kidnapped and she claimed it was two Latinos who kidnapped her and left and then no, they it was, it was Nihilus. It was Nihilus that killed her and she was it was Bunny and Big Lebowski. Oh yeah, Big Lebowski. She, she killed right herself, yeah. man. <laughs> Fucking Nihilus, Donnie. But yeah, no, there was a woman who claimed recently, I think California woman who claimed recently that she had been kidnapped and she staged her kidnapping and she dis because she wanted to disappear with her her boyfriend for two weeks. And then they he had her beat her up. And leave her by the side of the road because the jig was up and they were getting close to finding her. And so she thought she could control the narrative and they found out she was lying. So this idea of creating, of using people of color as boogeymen or people from different uh, upbringings as boogeymen, in essence, in these things is, is a time, sadly, time honored tradition uh, from these people who are uh, con people. You know? Yeah, it's, I, I didn't expect this movie to resonate as much with today as yeah. I feel like it really does. Yeah. The kids come up on shore and they run up to a woman in a house and it's like right out of the grapes of wrath. Yeah. An obviously poor woman who can't help but feed the poor kids, you know, and she gives them a potato and then sends them away. Right. Also right out of the grapes of wrath is that Powell needs some money and he gets some work as a peach picker. Yeah. And then he's around a fire and he is preaching. An ungrateful child is an abomination before the eyes of God. The world is fast going to damnation because of impudent youngins are flying in the face of age. And it seemed very clear to me that the dudes sitting around the fire with Powell are not into his preaching. No, right, exactly, yeah. Uh, and again, we're on the river, and we see an owl and a turtle. Then we see two rabbits. Not only is this a composite shot, it's a composite shot of a composite shot because they only had one rabbit. <laughs> again all of this is beautiful silhouettes and it's all not real it's yeah. all this german expressionism and it's it feels like a fairy tale you know in a fairy tale environment and they come up on one of the most beautiful shots in the movie which is this house next to a barn that's backlit in the in the sunset and we hear a woman singing a lullaby because obviously there's kids in the house and they and we see and they go to sneak into the barn. And one of the things we see is a bird in a cage hanging in the window. Yes. Is, yeah. And as I said in part one, I mean, that is to me the symbolic moment of the movie because so many people in this movie are birds in a cage without knowing they're in a cage or sometimes being aware, very aware of the cage that they're in. And so I like that, that that's the thing the kids see just before we see Homie coming up on the horse. They go into the barn, they climb up into the loft. And this again, it's just all so biblical to mm -hmm. me. It's later, the moon has risen higher and we hear, the first thing we hear is a dog barking. Yeah. You know when you hear a dog barking that a Terminator is coming. <laughs> because in the next moment, you hear the voice. It, that song is so haunting and he sings it so perfectly and it is so damn scary. Yeah. And then, you know, I said the shot of the house in the barn is one of the most beautiful in the movie. The next shot we see is astounding. Yeah. Which is John looks out the window and there's a horizon line and very far in the distance moving left to right on the horizon is a very small silhouette of Powell on the horse riding across the horizon. This is absolutely, as you said, the German expressionism coming through in this shot. And it looks like it's set on a stage, yet it totally fits in the film. 
and it is beautiful in how chilling it looks. Oh yeah. And how much it evokes impending doom for both of these children and the inability to escape, as you said, and so well, this Terminator, he, there, there is nothing they can do. He is always around the corner, maybe symbolizing in real life, danger symbolizing that that is always around the corner for little children. Um, no matter where they are in life, they can never fully get away from danger. Yep. Yep. Agreed. And the, the, so a couple of things about the shot, you're absolutely right. It is shot on a stage. Mm. Uh, part of it, part of what makes this movie look so amazing is that they had invented a newer high speed black and white film, which allowed them mm. to get these really black blacks, these really big contrasts. And that is not Robert Mitchum on a horse. Wow. That is a little person on a pony. <laughs> that makes sense. Yep. It's, uh, it, it, you know, and these are, this is the trickery that you use to get this remarkable shot. Don't never sleep. And he wakes Pearl up and they climb down the ladder. Yeah. Now I have to stay strategically. I think they should, it ends up great where they end up, but I think strategically they should have stayed in the barn and let him pass. That would have been the smarter. Oh, movie. right, right. But the kids, um, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. John's doing it. John's doing a good job. For, yeah, I mean, he's you know, doing the best he can. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Um, and again, we're going down the river, and then, I, and I found this really scary, which is they fall asleep in the boat, mm. and the boat hits the shore and stops, and yeah. so they're just asleep on the boat next to the shore, not moving. And I was like, oh shit, he's gonna find them. He's gonna he's gonna catch them. I was really scared at this moment. Yeah. But then it's sunrise and we see God rays coming through the clouds because we finally arrived at the good place. They don't know that yet. Right. But we hear. You two youngsters, get up here to me this instant. Get on up to my house. Mind me now. I'll get me a switch. And there is Lillian Gish. Yeah. And she is being very strong with them. Yeah. And John is ready to defend Pearl. Yeah. I I can't tell you how much I love Lillian Gish in this movie. Oh, yeah. Such a great decision to cast her in this role and her wanting to do the role. And it works so well. She just kills it. And and we go up to the house and there's obviously a lot of kids there, which she calls all of them. They all have their baskets. It's a nice house. Mm -hmm. Uh, She reviews the work in their baskets. And I'm going like, well, what, what is this? Like what, you know, who is this person? What is these relationships? Ruby, run to the house and fix the tub and put up at the pump. Clary, uh, Mary, uh, run up and fetch a bar of laundry soap. Yes, Yes, Miss Cooper. And I'm like, Mrs. Cooper. So she's not their mom or their grandma or their aunt or their, she's Mrs. Cooper. And again, I'm going, what's the deal here? And there's no truth to the rumors that they pitched hanging with Mrs. Cooper at this time either. And there's no truth as a spinoff from this movie. I, they're to- by the way, I could totally hang out with Mrs. Cooper. That's a great series. For those of you old enough to remember that series. Gracious if you ain't a sight to beat all. Where are you from? No answer. Where are you folks? No answer. Gracious, so I've got two more mouths to feed and she doesn't even say it in a negative way, like nope. the woman handing out the potatoes did. She's saying it in a way that's more like a little ball busting, but in a way that's uh, accepting of them. You know, I think she's an incredible hero. Yeah, incredible yeah. hero. I mean, she's a strange lady. <laughs> yeah, but right. but she is an incredible hero, and she and, and she and there's stuff in her past that I think we're going to talk about. Yeah, that you know that have questions as well. Yeah. 
Uh, so she washes them and then we head off to market and all the kids have their baskets. And what we get is that she kind of runs a farm and that she takes care of kids and that they sell sort of their supplies. Yeah. And she's talking to like the storekeepers, but then she also just mumbles to herself. Yeah. Your ma's funny. She ain't our ma. We just live at her house. Where are your folks? Someplace. My daddy's in Detroit. And what we start to get is that, like, these are just the detritus of the depression. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're just the kids that fell out of their lives in one way or another. And then a woman calls out, and one of the kids runs to her. And this woman, who's obviously has a job, says, Good morning, Miss Cooper. Guess what? I'm saving up to buy you a charm bracelet. Never mind the geekos. Don't forget your visit this Sunday and come to church with us. What do you think of this moment? Never mind the detours. I think that's an interesting line. Well, I mean, I think it's the first window into how the role she plays in this town, right? And the reality is that, you know, um, young girls have been having children out of wedlock for a long time, probably, you know, with other young men or older men in the town, and she takes care of them. And so she, her saying to her, like, you know, don't you worry about these other things. Focus on these things that can yeah. keep you on the straight and narrow can put some discipline into your life. Um, and she's not trying to be like, make her, a, I don't know how you say, she's not trying to use religion to nope. push uh, her points of views. It's more a matter of like, this is a construct that's in this town. And if you adhere to the purity of the construct, that can give you some discipline in your life that you can use to ha- lead a better life or create a better life for yourself. And that's essentially what she's doing. So, this is where we start to see the difference between Mrs. Cooper and Powell and how they how they administer religion. One uses religion to get what they want. The other is uh, um, administering religion to show a path out of um, darkness into the light in, with uh, discipline and um, parameters that a lot of us need in our world. Two, two things. Remember part one where I was kind of, confused by the left hand right hand love hate thing mm-hmm. it's like kind of explain and then as you explained it to me then i went oh no 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 this totally makes sense and it clicked for me yeah. what you just said is what clicked for me is mm. she's love and he's hate yes he, she is using religion for love and that and and she's strong about it and she and she believes in it and it's a powerful belief with her and he is using for hate the other thing is i just love the line never mind the detours yeah how how much could you and i have used someone to come along when we were in our 20s and said never mind the detours well steve to be fair i did have many people who told me that <laughs> and i just didn't listen so maybe you meant that to say what if we had listened to the beat? exactly that's maybe it's maybe better to the point <laughs> but then you don't live life i mean kind of our experiences that we bring to this show are because we took some of those detours so yeah, well, and and you know, I said it. The quote, the John Lennon quote, which I never get quite right, mm-hmm. but from, but life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. I mean, that is exactly that's exactly the lyric. Yeah, I mean, your your detours and my detours are what gets us to the cinephiles. You yeah, know, 100%, 100%. yeah. Um, uh, and then she sees a woman very romantically in another man's arms, and she says, "Look at there. She'll be losing her mind to a tricky mouth and a full moon, and like as not, I'll be saddled with the consequences." <laughs> Yeah, she's accepted her lot in life. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know I mentioned there's this documentary with all the outtakes where you can hear Charles Lawton's voice giving directions. Yeah. The, he gives her a direction. I don't remember what it was for this line, but watching Lillian Gish take directions, kind of amazing yeah. because he just gives her a clue. Like, and, and, and as a director, my feeling is 
giving a direction to an actor is a really delicate thing. Yeah. And you don't want to give them too much. You don't want to give them a line reading because right. that takes away their agency. And sometimes you're not 100% exactly clear on the thing you want. You know you're not getting exactly what you want. You want to move it in a different direction. And he gives her a clue. She instantly understands the thing that he wants, does the line a different way, and you're like, oh, there it is. It's kind. It's really kind of amazing to watch. Yeah. And then one of her charges, Ruby, who is kind of the, the oldest of the young women or girls, mm. is missing. Big Ruby's my bothersome girl. She can't get eggs without busting them, but she's got mother hands with a youngin', so what are you to say? And where is Ruby? And this is, I'm going to have to ask you what the he- what's actually going on here. Mm. Is she's with some boys. Yeah. And by the way, one of the boys, the main one is the is the actor playing John's older brother. Oh. And they say, whistling at her. How about tonight, Ruby? Yeah, the old lady's around. How about Thursday? What is Ruby doing with these boys? Oh, well, Ruby is a young girl, and she's exper- experiencing interest in boys. Um, and these two guys who are probably, you know, who are symbolize... Um, kind of these predator, young predators in town or young yeah. men who are interested in girls in town are there uh, waiting for her. And she yeah. knows where she's going. She knows exactly where to go to get this kind of attention and to indulge this interest, right? And those guys are always just probably just standing there waiting for a young girl to show up so they can uh, try to woo her into making out or into sex, and and that's how it was. I mean, this idea that people have sometimes about the old days that everyone was so prim and fucking proper. No, it was. Uh, we've always been dirty as a species. We've always been after sex as a species that has existed since the dawn of fucking time. Go read the Bible. You know, it's all in there. So we've always had that as an impulse uh, in humanity. So this idea of young kids exploring sexuality you know, that is inherent in our nature. And especially once we get into our teen years. So that to me is what I'm seeing here is that she knows where to go. She wants this attention. She's experiencing attraction for the sexual attraction for the first time. And she wants to explore it, you know? Um, and, and I would say, my guess is she's like 15, maybe yeah, probably, you know, like she's, she's old enough to have those desires mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not old enough to really know, to understand consequences, to understand the right. dangerousness. And I would say about the guys, like Ruby is clearly, I think they're jerks, yeah, but she's clearly making herself available to them in some way. And I don't know if Ruby's having sex with them or I don't know what's happening exactly, right. but stuff is happening. Um, yes. And she'll, when she reveals how many times or not how many yeah. times, but that this has been a frequent thing. Yeah. I'm not saying that she's having sex with these guys, but she's certainly making out or indulging in some so, level of physical attraction, which is again, why go it's crazy how much sex is in this movie, yeah. how much it's discussed between Icy's thing between, um, Powell refusing sex with her, then saying that Willow refused sex with him. Mm-hmm. And now we have, really young people, you know, yeah. like, I don't know. I don't think that Ruby is 17. I right. think she, she, and she could be 14, you know, or, right. you know, like th- that we're implying that there are sexual things going on. Yeah. And they're even more so when we get to when Powell shows up, um, uh, there's this moment, by the way, back at the store where one of the, the people tries to touch Pearl's doll. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and this is what's the, the old movie. man. It's the old man. Yeah. 
the yeah. ball, you know? which is a perfectly, you know, yes. grown up thing to do. Like, oh, look at your cute, cute doll. But what's what good movies do is good movies make you hyper aware of all sorts of little details. Yes. And then they ask Miss Cooper, and I know this is what you're alluding to before. How's your own boy, Miss Cooper? Haven't heard from Ralph since last Christmas. Don't matter, though. I've got a new crop. What do you think the deal is? I mean, clearly something happened there. And we do find out from her later that she might not have been the best mother to her own son. And so, in a way, she's trying to atone for that with what she's doing with all of the kids in the town and all the the unwanted kids or the kids that can't be supported by their biological parents. Um, she is there to take care of those kids and try to raise them right as best as she can. So in a way, atoning yeah. for what happened, ever happened with her and her son, maybe her son just wanted independence and took off. Maybe she was a bit harder with religion, uh, putting it on him. And so she learned that, Going the pow route wasn't the best route in terms of administering religion. So she's much more about love rather than hate. Yeah, I, I, I really, I genuinely don't know, mm. but something happened, and I don't know. Like maybe the son got someone pregnant, you know, since that oh, seems to be such possible. a theme. Yeah. Like maybe it's as you say that she was harsher on him, or maybe I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. This next moment, she gets this far away look, and I'm just going to say, I think. 95% of actors could not pull off what she pulls off in this moment. Yeah. Which is she has a faraway look in her eye and she says, I'm a strong tree with branches for many birds. I'm good for something in this old world and I know it too. There's a power in that, man. And yeah. You know, so many of us have trouble accepting who we are or accepting when life shows us what we're supposed to be and it may not be what we want it to be. And I like that this moment is very powerful and that she says, proudly this is who i am this is what i do and i've accepted my lot in life and there's a power in that yeah and um i i kind of appreciate that moment and i, I love that you highlighted that not a lot of actors could pull that off as believably and as deeply truthfully as she does well and i would even say that it's not that i would say this is bad writing i don't mean that but if my student came to me with a moment where an actor unprompted a yeah. character just said this is who i am and described themselves right I would go, maybe there's another way we could get this out, you know, that's not so right up front. People don't generally go, I am this. Right. That's not how people usually talk. And yet the moment is so profound because she's so awesome. You yes, know? 100%. And then we're back at her house and she is telling the story, which which I mentioned before, of Moses in the, in the, in the bulrushes in the basket. Yeah. And who do you reckon was in it? Pearl and John. Because that's what just happened. Right. What's interesting, too, is the movie starts with her reading Bible stories to the children with her head sort of floating in space. Yeah. And now we're connecting that to what she actually does. Mm -hmm. Sends all the kids off to bed and then says, John, go get me an apple. And he's it's like he wants to be able to trust her. Right. You know, right. of course, he's damaged. Why would he immediately trust her? Yeah. He's trepidatious for sure. And he goes to get the apples. And she said, which is going to become symbolic later on. John, where are you folks? Dead. Dead. Where are you from? Up river. I didn't figure you'd rode that skiff all the way up from Parkersburg. Which is a plant because yeah. it's going to come back. The upriver, down the river thing's going to come. Right. And then very gently, because you can feel that window of trust opening, he reaches out and touches her hands. And she, because she's so smart, she's so intuitive in her way, mm. 
doesn't do anything about it. She kind of lets it be there. Yeah. It, it's like it's like he's a scared kitten and the slightest move, wrong move is going to send him scurrying away. Yeah, and something occurs to me as we, as you talk about this moment, Steve, and maybe, you know, I'm off base, but you see a patriarchal society versus a matriarchal society, mm-hmm. right? And, and you see Powell essentially administering the patriarchal society and what it can do. And you see the how Icy submits herself to a patriarchal society. We see how um, uh, Icy's husband is gives in to the patriarchal society because he's a weaker man. And so that's what we see, the power, the abuse, um, the selfishness, the greed, the criminal aspects of a, of a patriarchal society. And we see her, Miss Cooper, symbolizing the matriarchal society, which is understanding, loving, tender, uh, slow, uh, and um, has the best interests of the children in mind. And so there's the difference. And certainly he, John and Pearl have probably never had the best of either side of their parents. Um, and so John instinctively senses strength in her. And so when he puts that, puts her hands on her, it's a way of slowly moving towards a strong uh, parental figure. Um, and the way she administers that, I think is what wins him over eventually, you know? You know what occurs to me is there are only two adults in this movie that truly act out of love, and mm. that's Miss Cooper and Dad. But Dad's way of acting out love is by committing a crime and stealing right. money and killing two people. Right, right. And then making his kids swear to this thing that, I mean, Dad doesn't know that the swearing to this thing is going to be as torturous as it's going to be, but it is. Whereas Miss Cooper is fully acting out of love, and it only just occurred to me, her name is not Mrs. Cooper. Right. It's Ms. Cooper, yeah. So was she married when she had her son? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. Because if she was married and her husband died, people would still call her Mrs. Cooper. They wouldn't right. call her Miss exactly. Cooper. Yeah. And then John asked to hear the story again. But when he asked for the story, he asked about the two kings that were in the skiff and the sand and that hit the sandbar. Kings? Well, there was only one king, honey. Hi, mind you said there was two. And there's this moment where and, and again it's just it's I, I just love her character so much where she processes that. And what I think is happening is that she realizes that the story connected to John and Pearl and yeah. them in the skiff. And so she reinvents the story to to follow that. She says, well, shoot now. Maybe there was. Yes, come to think of it, there was too. And then John takes a bite of that apple. Which is, of course, biblical, too, because the apple is knowledge in the yep. Bible. Uh, we're in a, I will call the bad part of town, <laughs> where we see neon lights. And the, by the way, the, the, the music is like a jazzed up version of the waltz that was created for Willa's character. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, it's, it isn't a realistic bad neighborhood. It is a stylized bad neighborhood because, again, this is all a fairy tale, yeah. you know? Yeah. So this is like... This is like Pinocchio going to the land where they're all going to turn into donkeys, you know? Like, it's that kind of a space. Must be Thursday. Here comes Ruby. And one of the guys is, like, walking up to her, because obviously they've done this before, and who steps in between them but Harry Powell. Uh, You're Ruby, ain't you, my child? Can I have this? Surely. 
I'd uh, like to talk to you, my dear. Will you buy me an ice cream? Of course. So I... <sighs> Ruby has done this before in some, on some ways. Yes. Yeah. Exchanging gifts mm-hmm. for, I think, some kinds of... She, she knows there's some kind of sexual favors. Right. Down the line. Possibly, yeah. Watch out, preacher. Watch out, preacher. Shut your dirty mouth. So we're in the ice cream parlor. She's eating ice cream. He is not eating anything. And she says, Ain't I pretty? Why, you're the prettiest thing I've ever seen in all my wine. Ain't nobody never told you that, Ruby? No one ever did. Why? I mean, it's a dumb question, but I'm going to just say it anyway. What you're, what, there's, there's something you're struggling with. Well, what, what, is, what is going on for you with, well, with if, her? If she's having, I don't know, I, if she is having sex, which is possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not exactly prostitution, but she's like, you buy me ice cream or you buy me a magazine mm-hmm. and I will do stuff for you. Well, again, this it's is a, a really, of, it's, yeah, it's a fucked up situation. It's a for, patriarchal for society, a girl. Yeah. right? It's a patriarchal society. These, she has no money to, of her own. She has right. no trait or skills of her own yet, um, but she has learned to use her sexuality because men find worth in that and so because she's not emotionally intelligent or intelligent about the world to her young mind she understands i can trade this for this and i can trade this for the fleeting feeling of attention right because clearly she's in a she was an abused child or a forgotten child or a child that is her mom's not around her so she's been pawned off to be raised by someone else so there's a sense of abandonment the loss of worth self-worth and so for her, she turns to the only currency she has, which is her sexuality. Um, and so because she's not aware of how that can be misconstrued or how that can be abused yet, uh, she uses it in this situation because Lord knows we, as we all as teenagers, need that stroke. And need and I don't mean stroke physically. I mean like just the feeling of being right. wanted, you know? Well, that's so the thing that sticks she's out. She's got to me. it so warped in her mind, is what I'm, yeah. I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that sticks out to me so much in this moment because mm-hmm. her asking, "Ain't I pretty?" Yeah. is saying, "I have, as you said, this need." Yes, like I need love. It's not. It's not. It's yes. She wants the magazine, and right. yes, she likes the right. ice cream. Right. And maybe, and maybe she would even get money down the line if this were to continue. Yeah. But that's not the need. The need is I need to feel attractive. I need to feel loved. I need to feel this thing. And she doesn't understand what what else is happening around this. You know, right, right, right. Um, and how dangerous. Now, now I don't know that those guys, young guys, are quote unquote predators. But this will, if this were to continue, this would not go well for her. You know, yeah. no, of course not. But Pal is interested in the two new ones at the place. And she he says, what's their names? And she says, Pearl and John. Mm. And then he says, is there a doll? And I love this line because it's a great line. Only they don't ever let me play with it. Yeah. And you uh, know, he's, he's, he's an older man. So much in a older. way, he, yeah, much older, of course. Yes, of course. And, and, in, a, and in a way, she he symbolizes you know, the father energy that she has exactly. not had in yeah. her life either. And so there's yeah. a lot of things that get confused with that, you know? Well, I mean, it's, you know, Pearl calls him daddy pal. Yeah. Like, like, you know, these are people that need love and they don't know that he's a horrible, awful serial killer. Yeah. Back at the house, Miss Cooper sees the magazine, doesn't know how she had the money to get it. And she says, and, and Ruby's afraid, afraid to say anything, but finally admits. This man at the drugstore, he gave The drugstore? 
Scooper, I never been to sewing lessons all them times. What you been up to, Ruby? I've been out with men. Men, plural. Yes. Yeah. And Miss Cooper isn't angry. Right. You were looking for love, Ruby, in the only foolish way you knew how. I can't tell you the reaction I had. Well, I guess I'm going to try. The reaction I had. <laughs> right. If you didn't, we don't have a show. Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> uh, the, the reaction I had at this scene further affirmed for me why we do this show, why I constantly tell people how important it is to go back and watch the classic films. Because this is such a progressive moment of understanding. We live in such a judgmental world. And look, I contribute to the judgment too. I mean, if you follow me on Twitter or social media, you know I can be quite judgmental of certain things. So I get it, right? But here is a woman in a 1950s film giving you what is a psychologically progressive analysis of a young woman's pursuit of sex at this time. Whereas in another film, it would be an older woman chastising. If this is Icy Spoon, Icy is absolutely chastising her for using the sexuality and calling it anti-religious, anti-God. Mrs. Ms. Cooper is a much more understanding soul who uses her life experiences as knowledge to pass on to people, but also as a, a means to understand them and accept them and explain to them the um, reasons why they're doing the things they're doing. It's psychology 101, but in the 1950s, how many of these films are, were doling out psychology 101 stuff? So when you talk about how, oh, these are new things, these are groundbreaking things in modern movies, when you go back and watch these same things happening in the 1950s, they weren't groundbreaking. You just don't have the knowledge of these older films because you're not willing to go back and watch them because you claim they're dated. And so it's just to me so frustrating. And this is coming to me very powerfully, passionately for me in my life over the last few months as I've seen what's happening with TCM, as I've seen more and more of these younger influencers or critics coming up who have not watched one of these classic films and claim to think they know what, what they're talking about when they talk about film, it's frustrating to me. And so this moment struck me even more powerfully this time around because you see her very clearly accept her and understand her. And that's not something we always see in film. And I thought it was fantastic to witness, you know? Well, and you mentioned Icy. I, I want to just add to that because I agree with that. She would have just condemned her and, you know, insulted her and said she was a sinner or whatever. Yeah. And this is Icy, who you and I both believe is a very sexually frustrated woman. I think she's yes. a lot closer to Ruby as someone who needs the reason that Icy became who became because she didn't get the love that she needed, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and this next moment, again, she's amazing because it's she these are just straight up lines that she she manages to say in a perfectly straight up way she says we all need love ruby i lost the love of my son i found it with you all yeah that's strong yeah and then and again this to your point about the progressiveness and modernness of this movie she says you're gonna grow up to be a strong fine woman and I'm going to see to it that you do. Love, acceptance, care, guidance. Yeah. And then we ask about, well, who was this guy that gave you this <laughs> magazine and bought you ice cream? 
And he was, she says he was asking about Pearl and John. Is he their pet? I don't know. And I think that's the first little seed of suspicion yeah. that's going to save the day, uh, which is Lillian Gish, unlike, or Miss Cooper, unlike uh, Icy and everyone else we've met, is not actually trusting yeah. of and not does will not buy into this stuff because the next day, while Ruby is out gathering some eggs, who rides up but Harry Powell? Yeah. Um, by the way, this is a most of this shot where it's Powell, uh, Lillian Gish up on the porch, and Powell's talking to them from down in the yard. Mm. Is the stuff on Robert Mitchum is a pickup because, and I'm not quite sure what what went wrong in the first version, but yeah. not only is a pickup, Robert Mitchum was on another movie at the point that they <laughs> shot this. He's working on another movie. They managed to call him in for one day. They can't get the location out on the back lot. Oh. So this is actually shot on a stage made to look like the back lot. And apparently uh, Robert Mitchum was out partying a bit the night before. So he was very hungover <laughs> when he was shooting this stuff. I just want to know if they digitally removed his mustache from the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, of course they did. He tries to lay out his same old bullshit. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear madam, if you wish to know what a crown of thorns I have borne in my search for them straight chicks. Ruby, go fetch them kids. Now, do you think that she believes him at this moment? I think she is giving him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, that's what I think, too. Yeah, yeah. But the, again, each thing he does makes that doubt get bigger. Yeah. Because then he says, oh, madam, I see you're looking at my hands. And he goes right into his spiel yeah. and he starts to do it. And she just interrupts him. I think she's had fake preachers around before. She yeah. and as she does, I don't think she trucks with fake preachers <laughs> is the word that I would use. It was with this left hand that old brother Kane struck the blow that laid his brother low. Them kids is yours? My own flesh and blood. And then he tells another story about mom. This time, mom ran off with a drummer at a prayer meeting. Where's she at? Down the river, Summers, Parkersburg, maybe Cincinnati, one of them Sodoms of the Ohio River. When John told her that they came from upriver, she went, oh, well, I didn't think that you rode that skiff up from Parkersburg. Because it wouldn't make sense for them to row a, a boat upriver. That yeah. would be impossible for little kids. And so now she asks if the kids went with mom when she ran away. Oh, heaven only knows what unholy sights and sounds them innocent little babes has heard in the dens of perdition where she dragged them. And now the doubt is full. Right funny, ain't it, how they rode all the way upriver in a 10-foot John boat. And you could see him go, uh-oh. Yeah. And now the kids come out. And you see when the kids come out that the first thing that he notices is Pearl's got the doll. And there's little John. What's wrong, John? Come to me, boy. What's wrong, John? Didn't you hear me, boy? John, when your dad says come, you should mind him. And in the strongest, clearest way, he says, He ain't my dad. Yeah. Bang. And and she knew it. I think she already knew it because the next thing she says is, No, and he ain't no preacher neither. <laughs> she gets up to go inside. John grabs the doll and, and Pearl, and they run to hide under the deck. And Powell goes right after them and draws his knife. Yeah. And is heading under the deck, and what do we hear but the cock of a gun? Just march yourself yonder to your horse, mister. And he says, All right, but you haven't heard the last of Harry Powell yet. The Lord God Jehovah will guide my hand in vengeance. I'll be back when it's dark. It's all weak-ass protestation. Yeah. Because she's essentially emasculated him with the rifle. 
which of course stands for could stand for a penis or whatever, but she's using it against him with his little knife. Yeah. Well, no adult has seen through his bullshit in this entire. Well, no, no, that's not true. I shouldn't say that. The judge at the beginning saw right. his bullshit, right. and right. yeah, and Dad did too. Well, and I would argue what you see here in the movie, right, right. Dad saw, of course, Dad's street smart, so right. he understood. But you've got uh, a judge, and you've got uh, this woman who's been through the wars of life. So the people who have education or people who've admit have some level of intelligence can see through his bullshit, right? And whereas he's always trying to preach to people who are either already willing to submit to a religious point of view, or like he was trying to preach with the peach pickers, trying to preach uh, to right. all to poor people who are not that intelligent or for whatever reasons. And trying to manipulate them with his stuff, you know. It is night. It is the night of the hunter. It is the night of the hunter. And he is inside their yard singing. Leaning, leaning. Again, it's redundant, but the lighting is just gorgeous. Yeah. And Miss Cooper is sitting in that rocker with her, her rifle. Mm-hmm. Ruby gets up and is listening to him sing. And the camera pushes in past Mrs. Cooper out to Robert Mitchum, where he's on a stump inside the yard. Mm. And the expression of strength on Lillian Gish's face of just total determination is amazing. And then what happens next is one of the most remarkable moments of any movie I've ever seen. Yeah, There was no way to expect what's about to happen. It is completely amazing and bizarre and it is like unlike anything else which is that he is singing and she starts singing with him and she sings a different version of the same song she sings the version that has jesus in yep. it which he does not she is New Testament, again, which is love. He is mm. Old Testament, which you could argue is God hating his creations in the way he administers some of his justice, like mm-hmm, sure. killing them all, in, or almost all of them except for Noah and his family uh, in when he uh, does that in, yeah. in, in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah, the smiting of the firstborn. Yes. All you got a lot of, yeah, agreed, yeah. I, I just them singing the serial killer and the saint – harmonizing together (laughs) in a religious song in this moment uh, that's really fucking scary. I don't know what it, it it evokes so much emotion in me Mm. and so much of just, you know, as obviously I've said many times, I'm an atheist, but the strength of her religious faith Mm. in that moment to join in that song is just super profound. Yeah. And then I'm not entirely sure what has happened in this moment. Because Ruby comes up with a candle, and because there's a shade, and the way the lighting is, you can yeah. see through the shade because the moon is very bright outside to to Powell. But because she comes with a candle, the shade becomes opaque, which means that, and and you know, you know, we all know this from if you if you're in the lighted room, people on the outside can see you. Yeah. Where you know, and so suddenly they become more visible to him. But then what she says, so that moment is just scary. Mm-hmm. And what she says though is. Did Ruby go out and talk to him or do something with him? No, I, but I think she's putting, I think she's of two minds, Ruby is. Uh, and so maybe she is 
wandering around in certain areas of the house that, so she can be seen by him. Yeah, I think because I don't think look, Ruby's not that smart, you know. Well, you know, she's young, but she I she does not get what the fuck is going on right here or who this person is, obviously. Right. And then Miss Cooper tells Ruby to get the kids up out of bed and bring them all down there and then looks out the window and we see an owl kill a rabbit. Miss Cooper says, it's a hard world for little things. It's a little bit later. The kids are all lined up in front of a brick wall and Miss Cooper is pacing back and forth, standing guard. Yeah. And I think in this moment, she realizes the kids are scared. Yeah. And so what she does isn't just, I'm not, it's not just enough for me to protect them with my weapon. I have to reassure them and even connect this moment religiously because she starts doing what we've seen her do many times, which is she tells the story. And this time, it is the story of King Herod. So that cruel old King Herod figured if he was to kill all the babies in the land, he'd be sure and get little Jesus. Why do you think she picked this story? It's a good question. I I don't know, actually. I, I can't come up with something mentally in my head right now. Uh, I, I, for me, it yeah. became very clear, Pal is King Herod coming to kill the children. You know, mm. he's she because sure. again, it's this direct connection between a biblical story, which sounds crazy an adult kill, killing a whole bunch of children that you know that to find one kid, yeah, and, to their situation, right? Because Herod was driven to do this because he, he, he had been told that Jesus would come and take his power from him, and so John, I guess, symbolizes that not so much Pearl, but John certainly uh symbolizes as some as someone who has always seen through Powell's bullshit. And in essence, would replace him as as a power in the in the world, you know. And so, as you said, Powell is Herod in this, and John, in a loose way, could symbolize uh, baby Jesus. Well, I had I hadn't connected it the way you just did, but I think you're 100 percent right. And that the thing is that the way they're talking about this in this version of the story is told mm-hmm. by Miss Cooper is these are two kings. Yeah, right. And there aren't room for two kings. Right. Well, when Dad. Gave made John swear. He essentially crowned him. He said, "You are the man of the house now." You're the man of the house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then what Powell came in and did was supplant him mm-hmm. by being the man of the house. Mm-hmm. And so there are, in effect, two kings. Yeah. Right. You know, one has to go. Yeah. So one has to go. And what's interesting too is she asked, like, what you know? Do you know what the what uh, Jesus's mom and pa did? And John conflates this story with the story of Moses and says, oh, that's when they put him in the river. Oh, no, that wasn't the same story at all. That was little King Moses. But just the same, it did seem like it was a plague time for little ones. Them olden days, them hard, hard times. Which, you know, we're in the middle of depression. It's hard, hard times right now in this movie. Yeah, right, right, in the movie, yeah. Yeah. Um, And now he's inside the house. Figured I was gone, huh? Run, hide in the staircase. Run quick! I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here. Then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. And then it's, I think this doesn't quite work in this moment. Like, I think what happens is that he runs into a cat and the cat screeches or bites him or something like that. And he pops up and she fires Mm -hmm. and he does this really ridiculous sort of scream and then yelps as he runs away. Which I think feels weird to me. I don't know how you feel. feel I love it. I love it because we've been seeing him make these weird animalistic noises 
And it's the sound of a, what you would hear from a demon, possibly, and once you conquered it. It would be this yelping kind of um, desperate squeal of fear that would run away after it thought it had power, you know? And so for me, he reduces, she reduces him back to being a child because he is a child. He's a, he's a, he's a state of arrested development where he is indulging all his impulses and uh, doesn't care about who he's hurting or who he's damaging in order to get what he wants. And so when she shoots him, uh, first it's a woman shooting him. And then you get the, then he feels pain maybe for the first time in a long time. And it is this kind of, I don't know. It's kind of, you mentioned Terminator. It's kind of like what happens with the Terminator two with the T 1000. It, when it gets, when it's dying in that melted lava, it is, or melted, whatever is metal. It, it starts to lash out and become all the different things it uh, took the place of when it was going after John Connor. Oh, John here as well. Oh, interesting. And you see that. Um, and so I think that's, and you see the squeals and the screams and all of it as it's dying. And I feel like this is what's happening here with him is that he's doing these squeals and shit uh, in essence, as he knows he's, he might be dying here from the gunshots. It's interesting. Um, I think what I've heard this moment is sort of divisive among people. Like okay. Some people, some people like it and some people don't. Yeah. And it's, and, and Charles Lawton, it sounds like, the I, I feel like he made a bold move and that bold move worked on you and it didn't work on me, hmm. which is the his feeling was he he wanted to lighten the moment a little bit and make this guy look like a fool, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, like he wanted he wanted him to squeal and show that it was all bluster. Yeah. You know, all that other stuff uh, before when he actually is hurt, he's not a tough guy in any way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, and it doesn't work. And it's really funny because I, when listening to the commentary track, there were historians and, and film critics that were talking and it, they, it divided them too. You know, like some said, I didn't, don't really get this. And some's like, no, this is how it's working. By the way, uh, Lillian Gish's reaction to having just shot a man is perfect. Yeah. Cause it, you could see in her face, I did what I had to do. I hate violence. I didn't want to have to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And only now does she get on the phone and call the state troopers <laughs> to come out to her place. Get your state troopers out to my place. I got something trapped in my barn. It's the next morning. She's still on that rocker with that rifle. John is cradled at her knees. It's beautifully framed. It reminded me like of the Pieta, you know, with Mary cradling Jesus, you know, it had that sort of look. Yeah, yeah. And again, we see the, the car's POV as the state troopers are coming up. Why didn't you call us before now? Didn't want your dirty shoes tracking up with clean floors. <laughs> and they say, Harry Powell, you're under arrest for the murder of Willa Hopper. So finally, they, someone has figured out this out. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get, and it is so bizarre, a completely parallel scene to the, the beginning of the film when John's father was arrested. Yeah. Cops are coming up. John, as... You could see John watching and getting scared. And then he does the identical gesture to his chest that he did before. And then in exactly like the beginning. Don't. Don't. And they tackle Powell and they're handcuffing on the ground. And John runs up. And again, this moment was totally unexpected to me. Yeah. And it is so powerful is he runs up with the doll mm -hmm. and he starts hitting him with the doll and the money is flying out. Yeah. And he yells, Here, here, take it back. Take it back. I don't want it, Dad. 
calls him dad in that moment. What What's your reaction in this? Well, this is a child not wanting to grow up. This is not in a negative way. This is a child who has had the adult war thrust upon him earlier than he needed to. And he's saying to someone who is essentially symbolizing his father in that moment, because he's not, he's not talking to Powell. Powell has become his father in that moment because he is, because of the trauma that he experienced watching his father being handcuffed and beaten down by the cops in that moment is now unlocked because the threat is over from John Powell. And so he now conflates the two as a young child might and sees that moment and sees the repetitive nature of that moment and realizes the last connection to his father is now being taken away other than Pearl, obviously, but also the money and all of this, the money symbolizes the responsibilities of an adult. And that's what he's saying. Take it all back. I don't want it anymore. Take it here, do it, do what you want with it. You know, when, when Powell is finally locked up, it's safe for him to do it in that moment, but it's just unleashing all this stuff that he's been holding onto as a young child through this whole ordeal, you know? And I think that's, well, that's what I see when he's uh, having this yeah. moment. And it also scares me, uh, which is something we, we I don't know when we're, if we're going to talk about this, that this could also mean that John will become just like Powell and just like his dad. And I don't know. And so, but in that moment, it's, there's a lot going on for him emotionally, the trauma. I, I will, I will say, I hadn't thought about that last thing that you just said. Mm-hmm. And, and my reaction to it is I would say that from what we know about real humans in the real world, that is a possibility. Yeah. I think in this in the in the fairy tale of the movie, that's not a possibility. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah but yeah. but but like I, I think this moment I found so moving. And part of you know, people like go like, well, why did you stay with the abuser? You right. know, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you why didn't you do other things? And and John has done the other things. He didn't stay with the abuser. He fought right. back. He did what was necessary. But kids need love and they need authority figures and they need, you know, they need these adults in their life. And, and if you don't have one that's loving, you, you can't help, but be, but turn to the one that's not, you know? And so, which he, I think he managed to not do that through the whole film, but that didn't mean he didn't need it. And, and, and what you said, I, is exactly how I feel of like, he is talking to there, there, he has associated this person with dad because, but he is talking to his actual father who who in trying to do something good for his family yeah. really did something absolutely horrible to his son right yes you know 100% yeah like he saying yeah 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 swear and protect this money and don't tell your mom even if nothing else had happened yeah and i think this film is a a um how can i say this you know we've been seeing recently a lot of people saying what's wrong with men what is wrong with our gender right and Certainly, uh, exploration of yourself is important in our world and the responsibilities that we carry as men in our world. And especially because the world is a patriarchal world. It really is. You know, are are women making more and more inroads? Yes, absolutely. And more power to them. But it's still a overall, overall patriarchal world. And I mean, across the world, the globe. Right, we're dealing with this situation here with uh, a federation official from Spain taking right, it upon yeah. himself to essentially physically assault one of the players because he wanted to indulge his sexual attraction or possibly and kissed her and then grabbing his nuts and grabbing one of the girls and putting it over his over her shoulder so her butt is right where his hand is grabbing the bre- the coach 
grabbing one of the breasts of the female assistant in a moment of jubilation. These are these things, and they and they blamed the women. Both of the men initially blamed the female players for enticing them into doing these things. These are age-old complaints of men who are not willing to look at their own foibles and their own um, proclivities to indulge their sexual appetites or their desires, right? There's a lot of, I think there's a little bit of Powell in a lot of men or, or a lot of Powell in a lot of men, unfortunately. And so I think this film, and I, I, I don't want to rush my final thoughts, Steve, but I think this film is a warning to men, a lesson to men, a maybe, yeah, maybe a lesson to men like, guys, we have a responsibility in this world. With great power comes great responsibility. If it is a patriarchal society, which it is, then the responsibilities of us is larger. The responsibility to create a better world is on our shoulders, and we must do better. We must not be an idiot on Twitter or on social media crying about pronouns in a video game. We have to do better as men. And I think this film, even in the 1950s, is saying, men, you must do better with the responsibility you've been given in this world, whether it's in the religious sector or in the or in the non-religious sector or in just society in general. We must understand the weight of the responsibility we carry and the power of us to hurt and destroy uh, and um, abuse that power and the generational trauma that we administer on people in our society because we are irresponsible with that power. So that's what I feel like Lawton might have been saying about um, men in our society. And as a gay man, what he must have experienced from what is a heterosexual, overwhelmingly heterosexual patriarchal society, what he must have experienced in terms of the abuse and the disrespect. You know, that was beautifully said, and of course, I I agree with it. And the the there's one, it's, it's not I'm not pushing back on anything that you said, but mm. there's there's one thing I want to add to it. First of all, just before we leave this scene, yeah, yeah, is you got to watch Lillian Gish and her reaction. Yeah, it's great, and you see the understanding come over like because she didn't know yeah. what the hell's going on yeah and now when that money comes out of that doll and you see what's happening like oh i understand what's happening yes the 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 thing that i would add to what you said so beautifully is it's not just men in this movie because what we cut to is icy spoon yelling lynch him lynch him lynch him right because she is not as evil as harry powell she's not a serial killer right but she is a destructive force in this movie. I, from, from our experience of the town that they live in, Icy Spoon is the most powerful person we see in that town. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Like she, she is doing her own little game with all the ladies of the town and framing things that come out of her space, you know. But she's an agent of the patriarchal society. She's in essence an agent that allows the patriarchal society to exist because she wants it to exist. So – I, yes, you're absolutely right. There are, certainly there are women who contribute to the patriarchal society who abuse other people in the patriarchy and take advantage of it. Certainly we're seeing that in all sectors of the world lately. So yes, you're absolutely right on that. But it's the overwhelming arcing thing of men being in charge of the world and what they do to people to make them believe they have to act a certain way in order to have power in this world, women you, included. Yeah. You will never hear me argue the point 
that essentially 98% of all the terrible things that have been done in the world, the biggest ones have been done by men, hmm. you know, like that, 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 so, so I, I'm totally with you on that uh, yeah. again, because I knew nothing about this movie. It just continually surprised me. Yeah. And I completely did not expect cutting to icy spoon screaming lynch him yeah. in this film. Like that, the fact that the movie goes to this place, which is fucking terrifying to me. Yeah. Yeah. Even though Powell is a horrible, evil person. Yeah. And they yell Bluebeard, which of course is the famous story of this man who killed all of his wives and, yeah. you know, of myth. And what we hear is that he, this, that preacher Harry Powell had 25 wives and killed every last one of them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then again, this moment is so great, which is that we have a, a single of John sitting on the witness stand. And obviously the prosecuting attorney is saying, will you identify the prisoner? And he's, I love the way it's framed because we don't see the attorney. We just see John and we see his arm pointed across John's face. Yeah. And John looks at the finger pointing, but he will not turn and look at Powell. Yeah. And they finally let him go. He does not testify against Powell because he can't. It's reliving nope. the trauma. And Miss Cooper takes them out. They end up at a restaurant, but we hear the mob that is forming, the lynch mob. Yeah. And she basically goes, let's get the hell out of here. Get your coats. They start to leave. And then Icy sees the kids. Damn poor little lambs. They're the ones he sinned against, my friend. And I'm just like, yeah, you sinned against them too. Right. And, and that's what Icy symbolizes in a way. It's society who... Uh, supported, defended, uplifted, excused, uh, and promoted this charlatan. Uh, and once the charlatan is found out for the rest of the world to see, then instead of accepting that they they were wrong in their decision making, they play victim about it, and they want to destroy the thing that symbolizes their error in judgment. Right, and so that's what she, that's what Icy symbolizes for a lot of yeah. people. When they, you know, buy into a charlatan, they want to kill it and destroy it so that the the constant reminder of their flaws as a human being or their decision making, the things that make them question who they are as a person, they have to destroy it so that they don't have to look at it all the time and can retain some level of their power that they had before. Yep. Yep. Well, and the thing is, is like, Icy cannot see and will not allow herself to see how she has collaborated with yes oh, you her, her her complicity in the situation 100% well, well and this is one of the big lessons of the movie which is most of us fortunately are not harry powell most of us are not actually serial killers but all of us have the ability to be complicit with evil yes you know? yes and so the the big thing is you need to make sure you're not being icy spoon. I don't need to worry that I'm not being Harry Powell because I don't do those things, but I do need to worry that I'm not being icy spoon. Yes. Um, and now we have these two things happening at once, which is we have the mob with axes and weapons and torches looking like a big lynch mob yeah. heading to Harry Powell to kill him. And we have Miss Cooper and the kids trying to get away. Yeah. Because Miss Cooper is a good person. Yeah. You know, she, she doesn't, I don't, she doesn't want to lynch Harry Powell, despite how horrible he is. Yeah. Um, and there's a great shot where they cross right in front of the mob and the mob is coming towards us with Walt and Icy in the lead. And then they find Ruby cause she had gone missing. And Ruby says, I love him. You think he's like their mother. 
That is, mm. yeah, I'm going to stand by my statement that Ruby is not terribly smart mm. and that she still can't see what the reality of what happened was, you know? Yeah. But again, because, you know, because like you say, she's, she's not that smart, but also because, you know, she has seen power administered in her entire life by men. So for her is the fear of losing that power or losing that construct, what that does for her, you know? And yeah, it's a lot of underdeveloped um, emotional intelligence. Yeah, for sure. I really do hope Miss Cooper succeeds in turning Ruby into a strong, independent woman, we like can. she says she's going to. Yeah. And then, you know, it's way back in the beginning of the movie, and I had forgotten this character entirely, but we meet Bob, who was the executioner. Yes. As the cops are taking Powell out of the back of the jail, away from the, the mob. We're saving this bird up for you. This time it'll be a privilege. And then you have what I would say is like a very formal shot of Miss Cooper leading the children away. And it's like out of a storybook. It's like the mother duck duck leading her ducklings, you know? Yeah. That's what it looks like. And the music is happy at this point because they've escaped both Pal and the mob. Yeah. And then it's wintertime and it's snowing and the kids come down and ask Miss Cooper. Can we give you a Christmas presents now? Shoot, you don't mean to say you got me a present. (laughs) Shoot now. And they start coming up and apparently everyone's made her potholders. We cut to John who is watching this and it's very clear. I didn't know I was supposed to get Miss Cooper a present. Yeah. And, and again, it's when you set up symbols and then you deliver on them. It's always going to get me. It's always going to move me. And he, and he walks to the other room to the bowl of apples and he pulls out an apple and he wraps it in a doily as best he can with things from the Christmas tree to make it look pretty. And he comes back and presents it. And she says, That's the richest gift a body could have. And I'm not going to lie, I was sobbing at this point. Oh, yeah. it, it really moved me. Yeah. Because he he came to the safe place. Yep. And she appreciated him in the right way yeah. that he needed. And then as she's alone with her cooking, she says... Think the world would be ashamed to name such a day as Christmas for one of them and then go on in the same old way. Right. And as we said at the beginning in our first part, this was Charles Lawton's, you know, shot at religion and how it abused him as a young man, as a young gay child, you know, uh, and how it abuses some children who are in the LGBTQ plus community and how it makes them feel. And I, I think that's a, I think that's a personal thing he put in there to end the film like that. I, I, yeah. And, and I, you know, and we can go to, you know, this is after world war two. This is after the great depression where kids were starving. This is after, you know, 2000 years since the first Christmas of horrible things happening to children over and over again. And it's so fun. I know people have responded sometimes that it seems strange when I say what a fan of Jesus I am as an atheist and how, but philosophically I, 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 I truly am. And this sentiment that she's expressing about, you know, and it's also would be one of my criticisms and why I'm an atheist is exactly what she's saying. Like, okay, you said all this stuff. Yeah. And then this is how the world is like, you know, that that there's a real contradiction there. Yep. And she says, Lord save little children. The wind blows and the rains are cold. Yet they abide. (laughs) Also the dude abides. The dude abides always. And now the music that plays is actually the preacher's theme, but it's now played in a major key in a happier way. 
Yeah. John goes upstairs with kind of one last look at Miss Cooper, which to me feels like he's home. Yeah. And, and this is why I, I think in the context of the movie, John lives happily ever after, because that's what this is. You know, that's what this story is trying to be. And now she's alone. And she says, as the camera pushes in on her, they abide and they endure. And that is the end of The Night of the Hunter. How do you feel at the end of this film? Um, I'm happy for the ending of the movie, but I'm also uh, trepidatious. Like I feel worry because I'm a natural worrier. Mm. I feel worry for John going forward in the future. If something should happen to Ms. Cooper that takes him, takes her out of his life earlier than um, she should be so that he can achieve a strong level of adulthood with uh, an understanding of the world that will help him not to carry on the generational male trauma that he got from his father and from Harry Powell, that he can symbolize something more. He can change the system in essence uh, for men by being in a small way, by being a a better man in the world. Um, It's funny. I have a, I don't know what the first old story that hooked me was mm. you know what i mean of the because i i loved classic mythology i sure. loved those kinds of stories and i don't remember what the first one where i went on a real emotional journey to a final kind of release at the end mm. but i had that experience as an adult when we finally get back to the house and it's christmas time mm. watching this film you know what i mean where i felt i felt safe yeah because the film made me feel so unsafe Yes, right. Um, that when when John brings her the apple, and you know, you said it before, the apple symbolic of knowledge. It's also symbolic of the beginning of life, of the beginning yes. of family, of the beginning of all these things, and and of the Garden of Eden. And so I suddenly I felt this amazing sense of relief and safety at that moment. Um, the movie is in post, and the editor, Robert Golden, screens the film for all the executives at United Artists who described it as too arty. <laughs> of course. Uh, James Agee, who wrote the screenplay, or wrote the 293-page version of the screenplay, wrote a letter to the producers asking that Charles Lawton's name be added to the screenplay credit. Oh, wow. Because he knew that Charles Lawton, you know, but they made a 90-minute movie based on Lawton's script, not Agee's. Yeah. Yeah. Charles Lawton refused. Wow. And I, and I love that so much. I just love, you know, again, it's, it's like the opposite of Orson Welles, you know, <laughs> he didn't want any extra credit. Well, the difference um, between insecurity and security, that's the difference. Yeah. The producer, Paul Gregory wanted to do a road show with Charles Lawton to show the picture so that they would go from town to town and show it because he had built all this huge following of Charles Lawton doing these readings and stuff town to town. So he's like, let's do that. UA didn't want to do it. And they released it with another Robert Mitchum film that was coming out at the same time, which maybe you have seen. I never have, but but it is with Frank Sinatra and it is called not as a stranger. Have you ever seen this movie? No, I've never seen that one. I've never seen it. Uh, And, and so they release two Robert Mitchum films simultaneously, hoping that Robert Mitchum buzz will help Night of the Hunter. And the opposite happens. It totally gets lost. Nobody goes to see this. Not nobody. They didn't know how to promote it. Right. They didn't know what it was. Um, and, and one of the things that people talk about is you think about religious movies of the 50s. Mm. And you have Ben-Hur and Quo Vadis and the Ten Commandments. 
And this is not that, no, <laughs> you know? No. But uh, the other thing is that there are a lot of those people that uh, don't like sexual or violent things or yeah. things that are critical of religion. And so the archdiocese uh, denied the film distribution. The Legions of Decency came out against it. It was banned in a whole bunch of places. Can't help us from those people. Yeah. And so the movie bombed, it tanked, and Lawton was crushed. And yes. this is what, yeah. And this is why he never made another film. Yeah. 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 Because it must have been something for him to have poured so much of his heart and soul as a gay man into this movie to to kind of highlight the abuse that he had received growing up from the church and to have the church yet again destroy him and abuse him mm. and hurt him and take away uh, his creativity or try to drown his creativity. It must have traumatized him all over again. And so he, I'm sure he said, that's it. I'm not doing this ever. I'm never giving them the opportunity to hurt me again. And it's a shame. It's a shame because it, this is a, one of the most incredibly well-directed films ever. And to once again, have outside forces with their own nefarious instincts and agenda destroy creativity is always heartbreaking to see, you know, because that's not the point of religion and never has been the point of religion. So it just always seems crazy to me. Like, no, we can't have anything negative said about religion rather than mm. like there are people that use religion for wrong reasons and we need to call them out loudly yeah. to protect ourselves. That should be the move. That should absolutely be the move for uh, yeah. people in religion. But of course, they're always afraid of being exposed because it could affect the finances, affect possibly saving people for those who have the actual right approach to religion they fear possibly that it'll lose its power and then more people will be lost to sin you know there are many reasons unfortunately yeah. why that happens but yeah i agree you should be able to clean your own house yeah. before you try to start cleaning anyone else's rca liked walter schumann's score and robert mitchum's singing so much that they asked to do a soundtrack album with charles lawton narrating it in sort of an abridged version of the story interesting yeah which i kind of would love to hear it's yeah. sort of strange and then it's funny it's very it's similar to the story of citizen kane now, citizen kane was more much more successful than mm. uh, you know it had oscar nominations stuff like that right this didn't but it came a cult film on tv and late at night and shown in revival houses and slowly as as with the 60s, that wave of film criticism, people started to discover the film. In the 70s, there's starting to be articles written about it. In 1992, it went on the National Film Registry. And from that point forward, it really became a classic until, and I think you mentioned this in the first part, in 2008, Cachet de Cinema, which is the famous French cinema yeah. magazine, named it as the second greatest film of all time after Citizen Kane. Yeah. Now, I gotta rec I'm going to take some time to reckon with that. <laughs> but, but you're saying you disagree fair enough no 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 i'm not saying that i i i mean that's just i mean the, other than, other than citizen kane for me that list gets real hard yeah you know? uh what are your final thoughts on night of the hunter i feel like i've been through an incredible experience uh as a as a lover of movies right um it's always great to discover a classic film that you haven't got around to watching, even though you've seen a lot of them and being reminded of the power of these classic films and how important they are. And, you know, yeah, I have a proclivity to enjoy classic films. So 
when they're done well, they really work on me. But there's an intelligence here. There's a ahead of its time message of a progressive message here that I thoroughly enjoy. But I also am blown away by Charles Lawton's abilities as a director yeah. and what he intended to do with this film. As we said in part one, he wanted to evoke the best of the silent film era, yet make it work in a uh, talky, in essence, uh, modern film for that time. And have, a, again, like evoking the past, bringing it into the present for people to understand. And us revisiting the film in a way, we're going into the past to make connections to what's going on in our world today. And the timeless nature of a film is what makes it a classic. And this is a timeless film with themes, with symbolism, with messages that still sadly resonate with a lot of us today still sadly um, um, are topical today in our world. And so from a technical point of view, it's a phenomenal film. Dare I say possibly a masterpiece in its approach and what it was trying to do. But from overall, a, um, a reaction that it elicits in you, it is effective. It's so incredibly effective in what it puts you through and what it shows you. And maybe even for us as viewers, especially adult viewers, it triggers in us those fears we had as a child. It regresses us back to being a child in those moments where we felt fear from adults, where we felt fear around the corner at any moment, and the things we had to do in order to survive in our world and achieve adulthood, and um, maybe some of the lingering trauma we feel about that. So I think the film triggers all of that in me. And it's, it's one of the best films from that time that I've ever seen. And I have to add it now into one of my greatest films ever made list. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to summon my final thoughts and it's hard. What, what I'll say is like citizen Kane, there is nothing like this movie. Hmm. And, and I won't say that that's the only sign of greatness, you know, there are other signs of what makes a great film, but it's part of it. It's part of the equation is that I think if, if you put up an image from this film, there are no other movies that look like this film. Mm. There are no other movies that have this sort of fairy tale element and yet are absolutely terrifying. There are no other villains that through singing a song repeatedly in the film make you even more frightened. There, there, and there are no other heroes like Miss Cooper, you know, like she is full gangster. You know what I mean? Like she is a tough motherfucker mm. who is this pure and she would be very offended and probably wash my mouth out with soap for using yeah. that kind of language. Right. But she is a true hero and she is a hero of love. You know, we go back to those love and hate hands and she life keeps coming at her in all sorts of ways puts all sorts of strains and trials and tribulations on her. And she responds to life with love, even though it is the misuse of love that has landed her in the position that she's in, which is taking care of all these kids that don't have parents to take care of them. I mean, it's, it's, it is. Uh, and, and again, this might be a movie that I would love to talk to you about five years from now, <laughs> because yeah. it's, as we said, and this is all due to Kevin and Siobhan who uh, recommended this movie yeah. and joined our billion dollar smash club uh, to have us do this, that neither of us had seen it. You and I had seen Citizen Kane dozens of times before we talked about it, had years to contemplate it. We've only had a couple of weeks to right. think about this film. Right. And so I'm going to have to spend some time reckoning with it. And maybe then I'll get my final thoughts. And actually what I really should say is what 
it was with great films, you never have your final thoughts. Yeah, that's actually a really great point. And I want to add one last thing, if we could. Powell's story, he is foreshadowing the movie. Love looked like it was on the ropes, and then Love came great back point. and knocked hate out by the end of the movie. TKO. Wow. As Radio Rahim said, TKO. Dude, well, and this is this is this is the disadvantage of doing the movie when you've only just seen it, you know, right a little <laughs> bit, because obviously that's what happens. It never occurred to me until you just said that. But yes, yeah. that well, yeah. if you want to take some credit, it occurred to me during your final thoughts, so you triggered that in my mind. So there you go, teamwork. There you go, teamwork. Makes teamwork of the cinephiles. Well, that is what we think of the Night of the Hunter. Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts, whether this is your first time seeing the film or your hundredth time seeing the film. We would love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for the cinephiles. It's cine underscore files on Twitter. It's or or X. I guess it's the Cinephiles <laughs> podcast on Instagram. Um, and of course, if you want to support the show, you can do so on patreon.com slash the Cinephiles, where we have where we do watch alongs, we do Cinephile shorts, we have meetings with our advisory board, we put out our schedule once a month so you can have advanced notice of films, you can ask questions directly of us. And uh, if you want to join our billion dollar box office smash club like Kevin and Siobhan did, you can do so and actually pick a movie for us to do in pretty short order, not necessarily instantly, but pretty quickly. And if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would people reach you? At the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch. My YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, where we've just crossed 30,000 subscribers. So thanks to any of you who subscribe to the channel. If you don't, head on over there and subscribe. I would appreciate it. And my other podcasts, the uh, Hot Mike and the Geek Buddies, they're out there for you all to enjoy. I literally been binging the Geek Buddies yet recently oh, because I hadn't seen Flash, I hadn't seen Blue Beetle, <laughs> and I hadn't watched season three of The Mandalorian. So I've been listening to a lot of Geek Buddies and it's all been fantastic. Thank you, dude. So that is it for this week. We will see you next time for another great film right here on The Cinephiles. <laughs>